0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello and welcome to another Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. And today I have a guest who I guess most of you will have heard of for a long, very long time because he's one of the few people who's actually made a whole field of psychiatry and medicine his own. And, and that's Rick Doblin, who you all know is the founder of MAPS, the man who has pushed MDMA right to the edge of being a medicine. So welcome, Rick.
1: Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and we are at, at the edge. It's, it's very close.
0: We'll come to that in a minute, yes. But I think people will be interested to know, you know, when it all started and why it all started. So can you remember back that far?
1: (laughs) I can uh, remember very well back that far. Well, when it all started, let me just start by saying that I was raised by very um, politically progressive parents, and I was born in 53. And we have loads of relatives in Israel and uh, distant relatives killed in the Holocaust And so it was a big part of my education as a young boy was learning about the Holocaust and just trying to understand how people could do those things to other people and how the irrational is actually a lot stronger than the rational. Of course, sadly, we've seen that in American politics recently, too. And so it just was. My family was well off. Uh, My dad was a doctor. You know, my mom was a teacher. My grandparents on one side were very poor, ran a bookstore, but my other grandparents were successful business people. And and so I had this sense that I should be paying attention to what I like to call deeper threats, you know, than just food and shelter. And so that was just part of my very early upbringing. And then. I was a young boy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you know, we would be taught to duck and cover in case the bombs went off. And, you know, that wasn't very reassuring. So you have come to the U.S. by then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I was born in Chicago. Yeah.
0: Oh, you were born in Chicago. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, no, my grandparents on um, one side came over from Poland uh, around 1920. But my, uh-huh. but my other grand, great-grandparents actually came in uh, from Russia in 1880 into Chicago. So I was sort of a tried and you know, born in America. And uh, when I look back at it too, I was born at the height of um, American power, you know, after World War II. And I really bought into this um, American exceptionalism. Not only that, but I had this idea that I'm the chosen people, you know, from, you know, and then I was uh, white and then I'm male and then I'm the firstborn, and mm-hmm. my family was all off. So I had this whole, I couldn't probably have had anything better to, to help me think that I could make a difference, that I, I, had, self, I had efficacy to, to do stuff in the world. And when it was uh, thinking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was really this sense, now it's not so much the, you know, the Germans trying to take over and kill all sorts of people, now it's the whole world could go up. And it just further emphasized in my mind this idea of humanity as a whole potentially destroying ourselves. that just was very disturbing. I do remember when the Beatles' first uh, songs started coming out, and I thought, how stupid, these silly love songs. You know, the world is in flames. And, you know, I I was not very into romance or anything like that. I was too shy for that. But then the the biggest confrontation for me then was um, the Vietnam War and what to do about that. And I ended up um, deciding to... um, be a draft resistor and anticipated going to jail and being, you know, Martin Luther King said that the if someone thinks a law is unjust and is willing to break the law and suffer the consequences as an example to others about the unjust nature of the law, actually they have the highest respect for the law. So he was trying to reframe civil disobedience as patriotism. And so I was thinking, you know, now it's not just the Germans or the Russians, now it's my own country doing terrible stuff. And um, and that just was very, filled me with a certain amount of despair. And it just seemed like a a crazy world. And I didn't know what to do. And luckily, I went to this college called New College that was designed, it was an experimental college. It was designed for independent study, for off-campus study, no grades, all written evaluations. It was a fantastic school. But there was two things that they didn't put in the brochure that um, when I got there, I was very glad to see. Uh, and I couldn't. I, I wasn't surprised they didn't put it in the college brochure. One was that they had these all-night parties with psychedelics till the sunrise. <laughs> it was... Um, the school had been designed by I.M. Pei, uh, this arch- famous architect, and it designed... It was in Sarasota, Florida. If the school failed, it was designed to turn into motel. Uh-huh. So the rooms were great. They every had their balconies and... Um, and in the middle of these dorms was this palm court and they had this all night parties there and it was a private school. So the uh, campus police, their job was to protect us from the real police.
0: Yes.
1: <laughs> that, that's how they even explained their job. And there was also this culture of um, deep introspection with large doses of psychedelics. So the, the celebratory party part, and then also this uh, inner exploration And then there was a woman who taught Jung, uh, Jungian psychology. She'd actually studied with Jung. And um, her husband was a builder, wealthy, and um, they donated this swimming pool, this Olympic size swimming pool to the college with a big deck around it, fences all around it. And somehow or other, it, it became a nudist colony. And I was like this super shy guy. I could barely talk to girls in high school. And then I get to this college nudist colony at the pool and... So it, it felt like we had this oasis of sanity, mm. the underground energies of sex and drugs were sort of brought to the surface so we could work with them. And I started doing LSD and masculine and got these intimations of this these beyond ego states. And I thought, this has political implications. Now, I woke up to this after the backlash. This is 1971, 1972.
0: Oh, okay. They'd all been banned by then.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so that was another thing, except, except
0: in Sarasota.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they were not. Uh, yeah, they were not banned on campus. That's for sure. And it just felt to me like this is a crazy world imploding, and the sense that we can um, feel part of uh, this bigger picture beyond our ego, beyond our limited life and death, that we're part of this whole big picture. That felt to me like the antidote, in a way, to genocide, to racism. If we feel we're part of everything, then it's harder to demonize others, to otherize. To, you know, and and so I thought, oh, God, the psychedelics has a lot of implications here. And I was having a difficult time with my trips. I wasn't very good at um, being open and, you know, trust, let go, be open. I, I had a hard time doing that. I had been reading John Lilly, the programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer, about his work with LSD, developing mm-hmm. the information tank. And so friends and like I, created these uh, isolation environments for us. And we would do LSD and these solitary things looking for, you know, enlightenment or, you know, kind of a naive kind of thing. But it ended up where I got disoriented and I went to the guidance counselor at school and I just was so lucky that this guidance counselor took me seriously. And he said, here's this book to read. And it was realms of the human unconscious observations from LSD research by Stan Groff. So I I was very inspired by John Lilly and the work that he did, paid for by the federal government, I think by the Navy, uh, developing flotation, what were called isolation tanks at the time, been rebranded as flotation tanks. And he did LSD in there and tried to chart out how the brain worked. And so we developed these um, isolation environments. We have goggles and gloves and as much as we could do that to do this inner work. And it was very disorienting and difficult. And so I went to the guidance counselor at college and I said, I need help with my uh, LSD and masculine experiences. And instead of reporting me to the authorities or throwing me out, he took me seriously. And he had um, a copy of a book he thought I should read, which was Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research by Stan Groff, which was amazing because uh, the book wasn't published till 75. And he gave this to me in 1972. And once I read that, that's really the moment that it all came together for me, because this was a scientific perspective on the realms of the human unconscious that included a look at these uh, spiritual unit of mystical states that I thought had such political implications. And it was not religion; it was science. So I, I was distrustful of religion and dogma, but the science part was was reassuring. But then it had this what I felt was the ultimate reality check built into it. And it was psychotherapy. It was how he can actually understand how the brain works, how the mind works, but how to use those to help people grow. And so that was, it's not just philosophizing endlessly about realms of spiritual states or anything like that. It was just very practical and it looked it was just terrific. So I asked my guidance counselor if I could write a letter to Stan and he had his address. So okay. in 1972, I, I wrote this letter to Stan. I'm just an 18 year old kid. Stan's an MD PhD at Hopkins, and starting to think about leaving because their research is all being shut down. And and to my um, great good fortune, Stan wrote me back, and he said he was going to do uh, a workshop that summer, uh, to which he invited me to attend. And it was he had just been um, married to Joan Halifax. Uh, that was a, a kind of a short lived marriage. And so I, I took a workshop with Stan, and uh, it was fantastic. Then after that, I did primal therapy. I did a three-week primal therapy intensive and soundproof padded room for an hour a day, otherwise isolated to scream to get to my primal scream. And I did a month-long encounter group in the mountains to, which of California, which about 35 other people. All of this, I did the most extreme, powerful things I could think of. But I had made a fundamental mistake, which was that I... Devalued the whole idea of integration, and I just thought the more you take psychedelics, the faster you evolve, you know. And and I didn't really fully understand the need to integrate, and so I ended up just getting lost. You know, I followed as deep as I could to to these various techniques, and I um you know wasn't sure what to do. I went back home to live with my parents. I'm the oldest of four kids, so here I am. uh, you know, the first one out of the house. I'm dropping out of school. I'm Studying LSD, I'm totally lost, and I'm a bad example to my siblings. But my parents were okay, and they let me just sit there to try to think it out. And that's where I realized I needed to um, get grounded, that I did have to start thinking about this integration. And that led into 10 years in the construction business of building houses and building things. Yeah,
0: I didn't know that. (laughs)
1: Yeah. my, My parents, when I was 12, had a house designed by students of Frank Lloyd Wright. And I grew up in that house after that. And I so I saw them build things. And, and my brother actually ended up building his own house, and I built my own house. And it, it was just terrific kind of situation. And, and so I'm sitting in this gorgeous house trying to think of what to do. I decided to build things. And so that was 10 years while I was always knowing that I was going to come back to study, study psychedelics. And so after 10 years, I went back to college to the same place that I started. Now I was a 28-year-old college freshman, and the very first semester, the very first month of it, I left to California, to Eslin Institute, and I'm trying to develop a curriculum to become a psychedelic therapist. And that was mm-hmm. my first semester mission to develop this curriculum. And while I was there at Esalen, this woman, Debbie Harlow, came by and said, there's a new drug called Adam, And it's really good. And it helps you to feel connected to people, helps you feel love, it makes you a better listener. And... And then I, I saw a bunch of people sitting in a circle doing it. And I thought this, this can't be very profound. I mean, you know, you take a bunch of LSD and for hours, you can't even talk. Mm-hmm, <laughs> people mm-hmm. take MDMA and they're just sitting out around talking to each other. I mean, how profound could that be? So I, I like to say that I was um, stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I went home and took it with my girlfriend, I was just shocked how profound it was and how deep it was and how subtle of a shift it was from normal awareness, how easier it was to integrate.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And when I had been told about it, that it was a a therapy drug, it was kept quiet, even though it was legal. I had also been told that it escaped from these settings and it was becoming ecstasy. It was being sold in public settings. So. It was clear that uh, this was during Nancy Reagan, Just Say No, the Escalation of the Drug War. And so it was clear that it was doomed, that it was going to be criminalized. And I ended up writing a letter. I read this book by the Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations called New Genesis, Shaping a Global Spirituality. And this was uh, Robert Mueller was his name, and he he was French resistance fighter, but he had been sort of like the mystic at the UN. And his thesis was that we have the United Nations to mediate conflicts between countries, but really a lot of these conflicts are religious-based. And that we need um, to replace fundamentalism with mysticism and this global spirituality. And it had a picture of the earth from space on the cover of the book. And this was sort of my theory of change, that if we have this spiritual sense of connection, we'll be more tolerant of others, more appreciative. And so I wrote him a letter. And again, it was this situation where I felt like, you know, I'm a, a sailor, you know, a shipwrecked sailor on a deserted island. And I put a little note in a bottle and I <laughs> it out to the universe. And so, again, the assistant secretary general writes me a letter because what I told him is I, I, I totally agree with what you said, but you didn't mention psychedelics in your book. And if every new way of killing gets unlimited money from the militaries around the world you're saying this mystical experience is so key to survival. Would you help bring back psychedelic research? Uh, help us do that. And he wrote me back and he said, yes, he would. And he gave me a list of various mystics in different traditions. And the, the reading between the lines I, I read, send them MDMA, which was which was legal at the time. Brother David Steindelrost, Vanya Palmers, Rabbi Zalman Schachter. And so I would send them these MDMA, telling him it was legal, it was good for meditation or and then they would take them. Brother David took it in the monastery in half doses and said it really helped him to deepen his meditation practice. You have an experience and then you know what it's like, then you can try to get there on your own without the drug. Rabbi Zalman Schachter compared MDMA to the Sabbath. So this letter that I had written to the Assistant Secretary General of the UN, it came to the attention of Laura Huxley, who was Aldous Huxley's widow. And she decided to invite me to these meetings that were taking place at Esalen about how to protect MDMA once the crackdown came. And these were with uh, Dick Price, the co-founder of Esalen and Stan Groff and Andy Weil and Terrence and Dennis McKenna and, and just all sorts of people were coming together to try to strategize. And But they all had real jobs and, you know, they were doing other things too. And I was a student. I had all sorts of time. And so this friend of mine had this nonprofit Earth Metabolic Design Lab which was for new alternative forms of energy, and he wasn't using it. So I asked if I could take it over, because we needed to um, raise money for this eventual, what we anticipated would be a lawsuit against the Drug Enforcement Administration once they tried to criminalize MDMA. So uh, Debbie Harlow, Elise Agar, and myself were the officers of this new nonprofit. And in the summer of 84, we did a first safety study with MDMA. Starting in 85, we actually funded uh, 28-day toxicity studies in the dog and the rat, because it was clear to me that we needed to go through the FDA. I also contacted Dave Nichols, who was at Purdue, and um, I paid him uh, $4,000 for a kilogram of MDMA.
0: (laughs) He's an efficient chemist.
1: He he, was a really, yes. Well, he had his students doing it. And here's the amazing thing. That was 1985, and we are still using that MDMA in some studies today. It's an incredibly stable molecule and, and Dave actually got a good yield. He got like a kilogram and a half. And it's just, it's no less pure than GMP MDMA. It was, but it just wasn't made under GMP, but it was, you know, exceptionally pure. So all of this was in anticipation of uh, needing to go through the FDA. So it was in the 84, the summer 84, the DEA moved to criminalize MDMA. I went to Washington within the 30 day public comment period and requested a hearing. There was a lawyer, Rick Cotton, who has gone to school with Andy Wild, and he was part of a big D.C. law firm. They took the case pro bono. We'd introduced Lester Grinspoon at Harvard Medical School, a big psychiatrist, and and all sorts of other people. And so we actually were winning in the court of opinion, the court of public opinion in in the media. We were winning in the court, and the DEA freaked out in 85 and criminalized uh, MDMA on an emergency basis. So the irony there is that the first effort to criminalize MDMA was itself illegal because the DEA did not have the authority to do emergency scheduling. Congress had given that to the attorney general, but the attorney general had never subdelegated down to the DEA. So they they just would have had to put something simple, a paragraph or two in the Federal Register, but they never did that. So for the first year, all these people that got busted were all set free once their lawyers figured out that the DEA didn't have I think it's kind of ironic that the DEA's first move against MDMA was illegal, but they moved against MDMA. And in 86, the judge, Francis Young, the DEA administrative law judge said it should be in schedule three, which was what we were hoping for. They We didn't think we could stop them from criminalizing recreational use or non-medical use, but we did hope to protect therapeutic use. But the administrative law judges only make no. Okay, so the administrative law judges only make recommendations. They don't make – they don't compel. So they recommend to the head of the agencies. And the administrator of the DEA decided to reject the recommendation and keep it in Schedule 1 so that's no medical use, no, no – it's all – everything's criminalized. We won twice in the appeals court because their rationale was bogus. Eventually, their lawyers figured it out to keep MDMA illegal. And so the, in 86 is when I started MAPS. And that's where, you know, when I look back on the things that I was blissfully unaware of, one of the things when I started MAPS as a nonprofit uh, psychedelic pharma company uh, focused primarily on MDMA, I didn't realize that no drug had ever been made into a medicine by a nonprofit.
0: No, can you believe it?
1: Yeah. And that didn't happen until um, 1999, the first drug that was made into a medicine by a nonprofit. And that was the abortion pill, RU46, that was legal in Europe, but in the US, it had been uh, John D. Rockefeller III had the Population Council, and they ended up funding with Warren Buffett being the main funder to make this. So that that began this nonprofit drug development success. But I'll say a big, big turning point after MAPS was started in 86, we had five different protocols all rejected by the FDA. Then in 1990, a new group took over at the FDA to regulate psychedelics, and they decided that they were interested in possibly saying yes to things. So the first thing they said yes to was Rick Strassman doing a study with DMT. And this was in 1990, but it was kind of a negative thing in the sense that Rick was saying that the DMT is the only endogenous psychedelic and maybe it's linked to schizophrenia.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to prove it was bad. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they gave him permission for that. And then Charlie Grobe and I who's a psychiatrist. We were trying to get permission for MDMA for uh, cancer patients with anxiety. The, this was now at a time where the, um, fear of MDMA neurotoxicity was increasing. And the NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, was funding George Riccardi and others to try to justify the criminalization of MDMA and to justify blocking it from ever becoming a medicine. And they they just so vastly exaggerated the dangers. They were trying to say one dose, significant brain damage, major functional consequences, you know, nobody should ever even research it. And yet there was Tens and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that had done it and looked fine. But then it became the time bomb theory. You know, oh, you look fine now, but your (laughs) reserves are going down. And when you get older, you're going to have big problems, which, of course, ignored the fact that a lot of older people had already been taking MDMA and had no problems with it. But we felt that the only way we could get permission was to work with people that had one year or less to live. So Charlie and I submitted this protocol to FDA for MDMA, for cancer patients with anxiety. And um, the FDA decided that they needed a formal meeting of the advisory committee, and they decided that they would open the door to psychedelic research. Uh, The National Institute on Drug Abuse had a two-day meeting before that, an expert committee meeting with all of their animal researchers who are looking at mechanisms of action, abuse liability, various things of Schedule I drugs. And the animal researchers came to the conclusion after this two-day meeting that their research was becoming increasingly irrelevant because unless you can correlate the animal data with the human data, you don't actually know what you've got. Some human studies to t- tell you what the animal data is telling you. So they endorsed the idea of resumption of human research. And then the FDA Advisory Committee did as well. But the, the caveat was that they would treat psychedelic research the same way they would treat any other drug development from Big Pharma, which meant that even though there was, at this point, 1992, there'd been over 15 years of the use of MDMA. Millions and millions of people have taken it. It's been used in therapy by hundreds of psychiatrists and psychotherapists. We knew an awful lot about the dosing, the safety, but FDA said none of that was done under FDA protocols. So we have to start with, <clears throat> excuse me, with a phase one dose response safety study. So Charlie and I did that. We did this phase one dose response safety study starting in 92 and went through the about three, four years. Then the group of people at the FDA that had opened the door to psychedelic research, they got disbanded. They were also trying to regulate tobacco at the time, which was David Kessler, the head of FDA. And that, that wasn't seen so friendly by the tobacco interests. And this group became very controversial. They, they also had the sad history of approving OxyContin for long-term use. <laughs> so in any case, the the new group at the FDA that took over was um, a little bit more cautious. They, they gave us, uh, Charlie and I, when we went after the safety study was done, we went to try to go back to do this cancer patients with anxiety. And it was still during this hysteria over MDMA neurotoxicity. But this was also now the rave movement was going on and it was getting larger in England as well. And, all over the world. And MDMA was becoming more controversial. And then the scientists were piling on about how terribly dangerous this drug was. And then Charlie decided that, that he needed to, this was not going anywhere. It would never go anywhere. It was too controversial. And so he said, I'm going to switch to psilocybin."
0: Well, oh, pardon me for butting in mid-episode, but I wanted to say a huge thank you to all the drug science community supporters. It's thanks to your donations that this podcast is possible. To thank our most generous community members, on the 8th of June this year, 2021, we will host a live podcast recording event exclusively for our premium and philanthropic community members. In this special episode, you can be the host and you can ask me anything. If you want to come to this recording, there's still time, assuming that is you're not listening to this in the distant dystopian future. There will be a link to the event in the show notes for the current premium in Philanthropic Community Members and information on how to become a member to join me on the eighth of June. I look forward to seeing you then. And now, back to the show. Ah, uh-huh. that's okay, makes sense, yes.
1: Yeah, you said people don't know what psilocybin is, that it's part of the mushroom, you know, and, and so that's how it, it began actually, the work with psilocybin with cancer patients was well, Charlie. Now, in 1984, when I was still, you know, in school and trying to learn to be a therapist, I had done work with a PTSD patient and had seen her um, overcome suicidal tendencies and basically tremendous, tremendous outcomes. And so I knew that MDMA was great for PTSD, but I I, I wasn't sure that, and I thought it was even better for that than for end-of-life related anxiety because of all the drug-drug interactions and the complications for people that are there. But a lot of people with PTSD aren't about to die. And so starting after Charlie left to do the psilocybin work, I felt that the neurotoxicity debate was changing in our favor a little bit, that the fears were overblown and people were starting to see that more and more. So in 1999, we started in Spain to do a project with MDMA for PTSD in the women survivors of sexual assault. And in 2000, I met with Michael Mithofer, he came to me at the world's first ayahuasca conference and said he wanted to do some work with, uh, set up an offshore clinic somewhere. He had just come from St. Kitts where Deborah Mash had a Ibogaine.
0: Of course, yes.
1: And one of his patients had gone to Ibogaine and Michael said he'd only go there, if he'd only recommend his patient go there if he could go along and observe. Yep. So he did. So Michael said, yeah, I want to set up this offshore clinic. And So again, because my theory of change and all, I said, I have zero interest in an offshore clinic. I think we can go to the heart of the system and change from the inside out. You know, I talked earlier about Laura Huxley, and one of the books that had really influenced me was Island by Aldous Huxley.
0: I understand. It's uh, one of my favorites, too.
1: Oh, oh, great. Yeah, because it's about this, you know, paradise island with integrated psychedelics and everything.
0: Absolutely. but,
1: But in the end, it's destroyed from the outside by the oil companies and they destroy the island. And so that was a parable for me that you can't there in a world of nuclear weapons and environmental disasters, there's no way, there's no safe place. We have to change from the heart of the system out. So I talked, Michael agreed that we would skip this idea of the offshore clinic and try to get uh, FDA to approve MDMA for PTSD. The study in Spain was heartbreaking because it was, It was our first study for a patient population, and there was some positive media about it. And then what happened was the Spanish uh, Madrid Anti-Drug Authority read the newspaper and heard the TV articles and decided to shut the study down for political reasons. And we didn't have the capability of uh, keeping it going, but we were able to start in the U.S.
0: Right. Before you, because the American story is amazing. So I just just want you to, you know, that was, you know, you've, by that point, you've been fighting through. A good 10 years where does this fear of, of mdma come from do you think
1: well i think it was the drug war i think that the fear was that if you have a drug that has all these you know people saying great things about it and there's not the the problem with mdma was that there weren't that many problems yes <laughs> you know, from the perspective of the drug warriors and so this, and and i think you'll you'll appreciate this you know just in terms of you know early on with george riccardi around 1990 before all the brain scans came in, and, and he was going on and on about how dangerous it was. I bought him his first monkeys. We did no effect level no, L, no effect level studies and showed neurotoxicity didn't happen at the therapeutic doses, but he didn't want to report that.
0: Really? Oh, my goodness.
1: Yeah, it was really bad. But then we did some spinal taps. So he said the only way he can see about neurotoxicity is look at neurotransmitter metabolite levels of spinal fluid. So, you know, I got a spinal tap and I felt I had to go first before I could recruit others to do it. Mm -hmm. Eventually I got two spinal taps and we did these big spinal tap studies with like 30 people. And, but then as technology moves on and we're starting to get more brain scans and things like that, it it just the whole narrative of this uh, one dose permanent brain damage, major functional consequences, you know, it just didn't hold up. And so we then tried to start again, MDMA, PTSD research in the US. And, and it took us four years to get the first study started. And that was 2004, we could start that. And then it took us till 2016 to complete all of our phase two studies. So that was 30 years from the start of MAPS, to 2016. And we had this meeting with the FDA. We, we did, learned a lot of things in phase two. We had phase two studies in uh, United States, Canada, Israel, and Switzerland. We learned that uh, MDMA works regardless of the cause of PTSD. And when I say MDMA, I should say MDMA-assisted therapy, really the therapy that the MDMA facilitates. We learned that we had a good safety profile. We learned that my theory... So I'll just say also is that I had been planning to get a clinical psych PhD. I graduated with a psychology undergraduate degree in 87. No, nobody would let me in. <laughs> and I told them I wanted to do MDMA research. Yeah. And so... And that was just, at that point, it had been since 1972 to 1988, 16 years, I'd been on this track. Nobody would let me in. And that's where I realized that the politics was blocking the science, so I needed to shift to study the politics. and So that's where I shifted and went to the Kennedy School of Government and got my master's and PhD from there. And then in 91, actually, I wanted to get a job at the FDA to learn how they work. <laughs> I was willing to um, wear a suit and tie and give up drugs and work at the FDA. And I had this presidential management internship uh, program, and I got into that. And anyway, it was, it was really good. And, and I almost got the job at the FDA. At the last minute, it's this pilot drug evaluation staff. They're the group that does psychedelics, but they do Schedule One drugs.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: the DEA said that they would uh, refuse to work with me because I had previously sued them. And so I have the DEA to thank for not having to give up drugs (laughs) 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 and uh, wear a suit and tie and work. But the people at FDA said that they would help informally because they couldn't really generate new projects. They would review what they needed to people know that they would work on that. So in any case, in 2016, we had the end of phase two meeting. I had done my dissertation at the Kennedy School. A big part of it was on the double-blind, how you do double-blind studies with psychedelics. And I I thought I had solved the problem, which was therapy with low-dose MDMA versus therapy with full-dose MDMA. And that caused confusion between the doses. And the challenge was to find the dose that was high enough to cause confusion, but not so high that you got all the therapeutic benefits. Then you could never find the difference between the two groups. And so in practice, and this is the beauty of research, is you sometimes learn your theories are all wrong. So my theory that uh, this lower doses of MDMA would cause confusion between floor doses—that part was correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't anticipate was that in PTSD patients, these lower doses tended to make people uncomfortable. Uh, best example I could give is you're about to, um, you know, take off in an airplane, and the early parts of it, there's a bunch of turbulence, and then you get above the clouds, and then it's smooth sailing, and so. That's can it be it can be like that with a trip. You know, you get these low doses, it gives you the turbulence, but you don't necessarily have a state velocity. And so everybody still got better with these lower doses, but when we gave a group therapy with inactive placebo, they did better than the groups that got therapy with low dose MDMA. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in 2016, when we had the end of phase two meeting, we said we've learned that there is no solution to the double blind problem that we can see. And we proposed that we um, look at therapy with inactive placebo versus therapy with full-dose MDMA. And after FDA said yes, we could go to phase three, we engaged in an eight-month-long special protocol assessment process where you design the protocols and all of the ancillary information that the FDA is going to want. And you try to come to agreement on everything you're going to need to make the drug into a medicine. And if you get an uh, agreement letter, then they're legally bound to that unless there's new safety problems. Again. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and because MDMA had already, by this point, been used by tens of millions of people,
0: mm-hmm. we
1: weren't um, that worried about discovering some new side effect that happens one every 200,000 people. I mean, we know sometimes people overheat when they're dancing and they get hyperthermia or people drink too much water, they die from hyponatremia. So we know a lot of the weird side effects that can happen. So. Anyway, FDA said yes to our um, phase three plans, and two one hundred phase one hundred persons phase three studies, and a bunch of other things. And then we got breakthrough therapy designation, and now we're at this place where we have finished our first phase three study, and it was tremendously successful. We're in the midst of enrolling for our second phase three study. The first phase three study will be published in Nature Medicine.
0: Fantastic.
1: The results were just utterly outstanding. Um, You know, for those people that don't know statistics much, I'll just say that statistical significance is if you have less than or a one in 20 or less chance that the difference between groups is due to some random factor than to your intervention, that's called statistical significance. That's 0.05. So like a nickel out of a dollar, it's like, you know, one in 20 chance that it's, it's due to chance. And you have to have two phase three studies and they think of them as independent Phase three studies. So it's one in 20 times one in 20, which is one in 400 chance that it's due to chance. So the FDA has set this up though, that if you actually get what's called robust results, which are 0.001, meaning one in a thousand chance, they may sometimes approve the drug on the basis of only one phase three study. Oh, So yeah. And what we, they also want to see that you have no effect by site, meaning that it's equally yep. distributed more or less. Cause if you have one or two sites that are doing great and everybody's else is not getting good results, but you know, they, they think it can't scale. It's, it's maybe, so you have to have that as well. And you have to have a good safety record. And, but what we got in our first phase three study was point zero 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 one 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 in 10,000. And so we, we actually have applied to the FDA for, approval on the basis of one study. We think they're going to say no, because it's new, it's controversial. We don't have that many people in the phase three studies. We'll hear from them in a couple of weeks. But in addition, we had a great, great effect size. So effect size, again, you can have the larger of the number of people in your studies, you can have statistical significance with smaller and smaller effects. You can pick up more and more things the more subjects you have in your study. So you can have statistical significance for a clinically insignificant finding, and so what we showed, though, and is it's called placebo subtracted effect size. In our case, though, the placebo is actually therapy, which yes, of course, does well. You know, what we showed is that thirty um, percent of the people. Now these are severe chronic. PTSD patients, most of them treatment resistant, but we didn't require treatment resistant, but they had average of 14 years PTSD, that those people that got randomized to therapy without MDMA, 30% of them at the two-month follow-up no longer had PTSD. So it's 42 hours of therapy with a male-female team. It, you know, so it, it demonstrates that our therapy is good. We're trying, our therapists are really trying, even if people don't get MDMA, but It turned out that it was two thirds no longer had PTSD at the two month follow up if they got therapy plus MDMA. So you subtract to get your effect size. You're in, in essence, you're subtracting the placebo group from the control from your experimental group. And so the effect size we got was uh, 0.91, which is.
0: Well, that's huge, isn't it? Yeah.
1: yeah, And that's basically just for the uh, MDMA. But when you look at within subjects' effect size, the group that got MDMA plus therapy, because that's actually what's going to happen post approval, 2.1 was our effect size. Right. Okay. And this is designed as a standard deviation away from the norm. So one, uh, point one, an effect size of one means your results are one standard deviation from the norm. Effect size of 2.1 is you are two standard deviations away from the norm. So we had great effect size. We also showed that it worked the best in the hardest cases, meaning we had people on the dissociative subtype. We exclude people who have dissociative identity disorder, which is like split personality. But we include people with, on the dissociative subtype. Those, uh, It's a common strategy when you're being traumatized is you just go somewhere else. In your yeah, yeah. And then it's hard sometimes to come back. And people are dissociated because it's so painful, the memories and all of that. So what we showed is that we actually got better results in the dissociative subtype than the rest of the severe PTSD patients.
0: Well, that's remarkable because that is a, a very, very hard subtype to help generally.
1: Yeah. MDMA is very integrative. And so we had a great effect size, great statistical significance. And we did have one person attempted suicide twice during the study. Unlike a lot of studies of PTSD, we include people who've attempted to kill themselves because we felt because of the stigma about MDMA, because we, we have to work in the hardest cases and we really have to the And so we had this one woman attempted to kill herself twice, and we had another woman who had such severe suicidal ideation that she checked herself into a hospital to avoid self-harm.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: At the end of the study, it turned out both were in the control group.
0: So this was the ongoing illness, really, rather than... The-
1: yes. Yeah. And that's why it also made sense for us to use an inactive placebo. Because if we had used low-dose MA, then we'd never know, what is is this due to the Underlying illness, is this due to the low-dose MDMA? Is this due to therapy? So by using no uh, inactive placebo, we get a better sense of the safety profile of the control group. So everything together in this study was phenomenal. And so now for the second phase three study, we don't have to get one in 10,000 or one in a 1,000 or one in (laughs)
0: <laughs> One in 20 will do, huh? <laughs> One in 20 will do. So, Just past the threshold.
1: Yeah. So it looks like we're on the way to approval. That well, is
0: fantastic. You, I mean, obviously, you, know, you must be very pleased. We're not going to count our chickens yet, are we? But you've it's been a phenomenal... Have you yourself personally been... I mean, how have the authorities treated you? I mean, there was, he know, you're a tough customer. But they, have you had any dirty tricks played against you? Have, you? have they tried to sort of silence the messenger because the messenger is so effective?
1: Well... When we were, okay, so in 2005, I was suing the DEA on a marijuana issue. So you may know, and uh, listeners may know that recently uh, GW Pharmaceuticals, which is a British company Mm -hmm. that got permission in 1998 to grow marijuana, they were just sold for $7 billion to Jazz Pharmaceuticals. And they make up the and Sativex CBD for childhood epilepsy and things, but In the United States, since 1968, we have had a federal monopoly. There's only one federally legal DEA-licensed producer of marijuana. It's the University of Mississippi. They grow under contract to the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Their marijuana is only for research. It can't be used in commercial sales. And so phase three research is only for you have to use the exact same drug you want to market. So this monopoly blocks the development of the marijuana plant. And so we were suing to try to get our own license. So in the um, this 2005 uh, lawsuit, it took place in the courtroom inside DEA headquarters. So you got to get security clearances. So I'm in the middle of the DEA headquarters. So this is a little bit, I wouldn't call it a dirty trip trick, but it was um, the DEA lawyers were, were particularly foolish. So I testified for quite a few hours and I think made a good impression on the judge. And at the end of it, they tried to question my um, impartiality and tried to get me to admit that I had smoked marijuana, <laughs> and, which, of course, I'd admitted in public a million times. But they, you know. they ended up, um, our lawyers were prepared for this, and they said, look, that's irrelevant. I wasn't asking for the license to grow. It was a, Professor Lyle Craker. It's irrelevant, and they were going to object. And the DA lawyers should have tried to impugn my credibility at the beginning of the day, not at the end of the day. Yes, yes. But – the judge threw us a loop and they, the judge said, well, in a criminal case, you can refuse to answer because you have the right to not incriminate yourself. But the judge, and the judge cannot make any negative inferences about your refusal to answer. But in a civil case, if you don't answer, the judge can make whatever inferences they want. Mm-hmm. And I was, we were sort of shocked by that. And so then I thought, oh, look, they're trying to intimidate me. And I said, yeah, I do smoke marijuana. And then they tried to, to say, did I ever smoke the night of marijuana? <laughs> and I, I said, no, uh, not only have I never done, but I would never want to because it's such poor quality. <laughs> and actually, that saved me that I had never diverted legal to illegal. I'd only done illegal all whole time.
0: Quite, quite.
1: So, but basically, the um, oh, well, to give you a sense of the authorities, so that, that was they tried to uh, judge my credibility. But but basically no. And what we have now, you know, we've tried to reach to people that don't necessarily agree with us. So that's a big part of this outreach. And so a couple of years ago I arranged for us to speak uh one of our therapists, one of our patients, we have a DEA consultant, a senior DEA retired official who's a consultant to us because his son went to Iraq, has PTSD and uses cannabis for PTSD. So we spoke at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. It's this uh, 10,000 person conference, police chiefs from all over America, all over the world, you know, just surrounded by police. And we were going to give a talk because I'm recognizing that police have a lot of trauma. And I wanted to try to get them to say, yeah, MDMA could be for you. And it turned out President Trump decided that this is his people, all these police chiefs. And so he agreed to um, speak there two days before the conference. And we'd been planning for this for months. They scheduled his talk at exactly the same time as our talk. We oh. get there, and there are thousands and thousands of people in line to see Trump. And um, we get to our room, which was for like 300 people. There was about 20 people in there. But one of them, it turned out, was a full-time police officer who was also a psychotherapist. And after our talk, he came up to, to me and he said, you know, I think this could be really helpful. You know, there's police officers who are committing suicide. There, We need something. And I said, look, if you want to go through our training program to learn how to give MDMA to other police officers, we'll give you a scholarship. And he he agreed. And so what's happening um, in just a couple of weeks, he's been through the training program. He's had me meet with his police chief. And what I've learned about in America is that if when police are hiring for new officers, if you're a veteran, you have preferential hiring. OK, makes Now, sense. so you get people who are traumatized from being a veteran. And then they go into a job where they see the worst of humanity and they get traumatized continually from that or, or often. And so there's a lot of problems. So I, I met with the police chiefs and, and, and they were sympathetic. And so one part of our program is to train therapists is we have a protocol where therapists can volunteer if they want to receive MDMA as part of their training as a patient. So there'll be two therapists and uh, they will be the patient and it's, it's tremendously successful so the police chiefs have given this police officer permission to volunteer to go through our protocol to take mdma and that's going to be happening in about two weeks
0: fantastic so fantastic. we are
1: now dosing the police with mdma to help them give other police officers mdma assisted therapy so we're, we're making our peace with the police
0: i suspect that quite a few police are on your side is that uh... You know, I mean, been these organizations, haven't they? Like, you know, the leap. You know, the law enforcers against prohibition. A lot of the police realize the drug laws are useless. But the idea that they are actually can help heal themselves, I think that's a very clever. Uh, that's a very clever twist to what you're doing. We're, we're going to have to stop. We've we've been gone for over an hour.
1: Say hey, one other thing, which is also that in 1990 is when I first started trying to do work inside the VA, the Veterans Administration, offering to fund research inside the VA with MDMA. And it would always be the case that therapists and psychiatrists that could see a lot of people that weren't getting the treatment that they needed, they wanted to do it, but it would be squashed by the political leadership. And that would happen every five years. We try a new VA, but we are now weeks away from getting permission inside the Bronx VA for an MDMA study or MAP sponsored study. And in the, the Loma Linda VA, which is outside of LA, it's a um, investigator-initiated trial. We're working on a protocol to take place inside the Portland, Oregon VA that would be group therapy. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. we're we're making uh-huh. these big breakthroughs with not just the police, but with the military and also with you know psychiatry and psychotherapy community. So I, I think we're really in a good place to um, make it all the way. Uh, the, the big challenge for us is COVID, which is slowing down enrollment, which is causing us to need to raise a bunch more money because we have all these carrying costs and the, the rise of all the for-profit pharma companies has made it even more difficult because a lot of people are wanting to invest instead of donate. That didn't used to be possible, but but in any case, I think we're in we're in good shape. We're trying to figure out how to go forward.
0: I guess if the VA essentially buys into it, you know, if they accept your data and you could, there's enough people in the VA for you to be able to roll out, you know, with their resources, this therapy presumably as a charity then.
1: Yes. Yes. And Rachel Yehuda, who's the researcher at the Bronx VA is in charge of the study. She's done epigenetic studies with uh, Holocaust survivors and their children. And and so she's going to be doing some epigenetic research, pre and post MDMA therapy in these people with PTSD and the vets with PTSD. So yeah, there's over a million vets disabled with PTSD Mm -hmm. in America. It costs the VA 17 billion a year or so in payments. And so we're in, um, yeah. There, there's there are more receptivity. The need is great. And so I'm very hopeful. And and we're also uh, looking forward to uh, try to make a partnership with Awaken on MDMA for alcohol use disorder.
0: Well, we look forward to that. Rick, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I knew you were a, a true force of nature. I have not quite <laughs> realized how much of a force you were. Congratulations on what you... I mean, that is great to have your face. I mean, we've been waiting with bated breath for it well at least a decade for this and congratulations i'm very thrilled for you and uh, i look forward to speaking to you again when you've uh, when you've cracked how to roll it out in europe as well as america thank you very much for your time today
1: yeah thank you david i really appreciate this conversation